What, do you remember me? I recently returned from a sabbatical this summer, so if you started attending Central in, over the last several weeks or so, and you're wondering who's this guy and what's he doing up there, let me introduce myself. My name is Jason, and I look forward to meeting each and every one of you. Well, today we're going to begin a new series focused on the Sermon on the Mount, which will carry us for the next few months. Now, some of you might be thinking, a whole series focused on one sermon. That sounds like a bit of a snoozer. Or others might think, hasn't the Sermon on the Mount been a little bit overplayed? I mean, turn the other cheek, go the second mile. I, we've heard all that. Or maybe the Sermon on the Mount has been used against you. Has anybody ever said to you, don't be so judgy? Well, they were, they were using the, the Sermon on the Mount against you. But unless I'm mistaken, I think it's also possible that there may be people here who have never heard of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, this is meant to be humorous, but according to some recent polls, a surprising number of people think that the biblical figure of Noah married a woman named Joan of Arc, that Sodom and Gomorrah were the names of two sisters, and that the Sermon on the Mount got its name because it was a sermon delivered on horseback. So that tells you something. But I would suggest that regardless of what you may or may not have heard, about the Sermon on the Mount. This is the greatest sermon that has ever been told. It is the most influential message that has ever been delivered by anyone in the entire history of the world. And even those who do not consider themselves Christians have been profoundly influenced by its content. And so over the next several months, we'll engage in a close reading of Jesus' famous sermon and its far-reaching implications for our lives. And if you already are a Christian, my bet is that you have not heard this sermon rightly. And if you are not yet a Christian, this is the most important sermon you will ever hear. So the question is, what kind of a sermon is this? Is, is this sermon meant to lift us up to soaring heights? Or is it meant to crush us into the dust? Is it meant to give us an inspiring call to action? Or is it a spiritual downer? Well, that very question leads us into a thicket of competing interpretations. Years ago, Mark Twain joked about all the commentators who had written about the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, The researches of many commentators have already thrown much darkness on this subject. And it is probable that if they continue, we shall know nothing at all about it. I think part of the reason why many people avoid the Sermon on the Mount is precisely because so many commentators have thrown darkness rather than light on what Jesus was trying to say. Some talk about the sermon as a new law that, that tells you that God will never accept you unless you follow Jesus' words right down to every little dot and jot. But then there's others who say, well, no, I mean, when Jesus gave this sermon, he never really expected any of us to do what he says. So you see, there, there's some people who lift up the Sermon on the Mount as an impossible ideal. It's an ideal. I mean, after all, didn't Jesus say, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect? But if you look closely at, at Jesus' prescriptions, none of us could, could follow them all. It would be impossible to follow Jesus' words completely or consistently. And so it seems that the point of the sermon is to reveal that we can't do it. 
to cause us to have to appeal to God's mercy alone. It just throws us back on God's grace. But no, because Jesus ends the sermon by saying, whoever hears these words of mine and does them is like a wise man who built his house upon the rock. See, Jesus intended us to do what he says in the Sermon on the Mount. But then there's others then who would say, well, no, it's, it's not an impossible ideal, but you have to remember that there's two different kinds of people in the world. On the one hand, there's the religious professionals, right? I'm a religious professional, right? There's religious professionals. There's the pastors, there's the priests, there's the missionaries, the people who work in so-called full-time Christian ministry. And Jesus expected those people to follow what he had to say in the sermon, but he wouldn't expect everyone to do what he says. That'd be unrealistic, And so those commentators uh, draw arbitrary lines. They create a a false dichotomy between what we might call the the sacred on the one hand and the secular on the other, or between the spiritual and the civil, between our private lives and our public lives. They draw a line between Sunday and Monday. But I would suggest against both of those ideas that the Sermon on the Mount is not an impossible ideal nor is it reserved for a select few that can hack it, but rather the Sermon on the Mount reveals Jesus' vision for the good life. The whole purpose of Jesus' life and ministry was to introduce a whole new way of being human. And this sermon reveals his vision for human flourishing, and that involves everyone. So this is the key to our well-being. This is the key to understanding how we can thrive and flourish as humans. And therefore, we're going to start at the beginning with what is known as the Beatitudes, which comes from the Latin word beatus, which means blessed. And what I want to tell you up front is that if the Sermon on the Mount is the key to human flourishing from Jesus' point of view, well, then the Beatitudes are the key to understanding the Sermon on the Mount. You'll never understand this sermon unless you get the Beatitudes right. So you'll never hear this sermon rightly unless you understand what he says at the very beginning. So we're going to start where Jesus starts, with a word of blessing. So let me invite you to open up a Bible to Matthew chapter 5. You'll find our passage uh, on page, uh, beginning on page 809 in the Pew Bible. It's also printed in your order of worship. I'll be reading Matthew 5 verses 1 through 12. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is God's word. It's trustworthy and it's true and it's given to us in love. Would you please pray with me? 
Father, we acknowledge that apart from you, these words will remain nothing more than letters on a page. And therefore, we pray that by your grace, the very same spirit that once inspired these words might illuminate them now for us so that Jesus' words might catch fire and burn within our hearts, leading us to a real living encounter with Jesus today. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, some of the most popular TED Talks ever delivered have been focused on the theme of the pursuit of happiness. 45 million people have watched Robert Waldinger's speech entitled, What is the Good Life? And 25 million people have watched Dan Gilbert's presentation, The Surprising Science of Happiness. Now, Dan Gilbert offers this little pop quiz. He asks us to imagine two different scenarios in the future and to think, which one would we predict would make us more happy? So let me give you this little pop quiz. Would you rather find out tomorrow that you have won the lottery or that you have become a paraplegic? So can you picture those two scenarios in your mind? Do you need more time? I don't think so. We would all say, well, I'd, I'd much rather win the lottery than lose the use of my legs. I'm quite sure that I would be happier as a result. But it turns out we would fail the pop quiz because studies have been done on both of those groups. And apparently, after three months, both those who have won the lottery and those who have become paraplegics report being equally happy. Apparently, three months is all it takes to, to adjust to a new set of circumstances. Now, Dan Gilbert's point is that we human beings are terrible. We are terrible at predicting what will make us happy. We have no idea what will make us happy. And so he suggests that there's a synthetic quality to happiness. Happiness is synthetic. In other words, we manufacture our own happiness. So he says, you can be as happy as you make up your mind to be. Now, I suppose that there's some truth in that, and that might be relatively helpful, but it doesn't get you very far. What are you supposed to do with that? That's not very actionable. I mean, apparently, he taught a class at Harvard called Why We Are Happy, which was one of the most popular classes at Harvard, and this is what he had to tell them, is that we're terrible predictors of what will make us happy, but is that why so many people at Harvard signed up for the class? Well, I'm just so happy, I just want to understand why. And you see, the point is, we human beings, we are terrible at predicting what will make us happy, and Gilbert says, so relax. But Jesus says, you are terrible at predicting what will make you happy, so listen. So listen up. You see, that is what the Sermon on the Mount is all about, and that is the ultimate question, is it not? How can we be happy? That is what we are searching for. What is the good life? How can we thrive and flourish as human beings? What will actually contribute to our long-term well-being? But here's the question that I have for you. Do you really want to know? Do you really want to know what Jesus has to say? How serious are you about this question? If someone said that they had discovered the cure for cancer, but you had to follow very carefully the instructions that they give you, you would pay attention, right? But when Jesus says, look, I'm going to unlock the key to human flourishing, 
Are you interested? How serious are you? Are you willing to listen? And are you willing to do what he says? So we need to pay attention. Jesus tells us that he has cracked the code for how to flourish as humans, and this is it. So during our time together today, I'd like us to just take up three questions. What does it mean to be blessed? Who are the blessed? And how are we blessed? In other words, we'll talk about the meaning of blessing, the object of blessing, and the secret to blessing. See, the Sermon on the Mount begins with these eight statements of blessing. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. And so the first question that we need to take up is, well, what does it actually mean to be blessed? And this is a notoriously difficult word to translate, even in, even in English. I mean, if someone sneezes, we say, bless you. What does that even mean? Or if you spend any time in the South, you know that if you encounter someone who is sincere and maybe they have good intentions, but they do something really stupid, what do people say? Bless their heart. What does that mean? Bless their heart. So what does it mean to be blessed? Sometimes people translate the Beatitudes as happy. Happy are the poor in spirit. Happy are those who mourn. Happy are the meek. But that's not quite right. What Jesus has to say about blessedness is not less than happiness, but it's a whole lot more. Because happiness is defined as enjoying pleasure and satisfaction. But that wouldn't make any sense of Jesus' words. There's nothing enjoyable or satisfying about mourning or thirsting. It would be trite to suggest so. So we've got to look deeper. So what's the difference between happiness and blessedness? Well, to be happy is a subjective experience based on our circumstances. But to be blessed is an objective state that doesn't fluctuate or change. To be happy is a subjective experience based on our circumstances, but to be blessed is an objective state that doesn't fluctuate or change. And that is what we want. We want to find a joy that lasts, that endures, despite what life might throw at us, something that, that can never be taken away from us. That's what we long for, and that, I would suggest, is what Jesus offers. That's what Jesus is talking about when he describes the blessed one. Now, the thing that you need to understand is that in the, in the Bible, there are actually two words in Hebrew that are translated as blessed in English. So there's two different meanings behind that word blessed, and Jesus brings them together. He combines them in his Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. So to be blessed from Jesus' point of view means, number one, favor, and number two, flourishing. Number one, favor, and number two, flourishing, and they go together. They're intimately related to one another. Blessing is closely tied to the concept of God's covenant. You can see it right from the beginning of the Bible. In Genesis 12, when God enters into a covenant, when he enters into a special relationship with Abraham, he promises him, I will bless you so that in time, the whole world will be blessed through you. And you see, that's the essence of the covenant, to be in relationship with God. I will be your God and you will be my people. So if you are rightly related to God through his covenant, if you receive his favor, well, then that will lead to 
flourishing. That's what it means to be blessed. Just think of the opposite. What's the opposite of blessing? Curse. If you're not blessed by God, you're cursed by God. To be cursed is to be cut off from God. And if you're cut off from God, nothing else in life is going to go well. But to be blessed, to receive his favor, means that it will lead to flourishing. So blessed means to find favor with God, to be accepted, to be approved, to be welcomed into the heart of things. And then that's when you'll actually flourish in life. Now, there's a number of, of examples that we could point to. Psalm 1, which we use as our call to worship this morning, tells us that the blessed one, the one who's fortunate, the one who's in an enviable position, is the one who's rightly related to God through his covenant, and therefore that person thrives, prospers, flourishes. Blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree. What kind of a tree? A tree that is planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. So you see that favor and flourishing, they go together. Psalm 32 says the same thing. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sin is covered. So favor and flourishing. If we want to experience blessing, we have to find the favor of God which leads to our ultimate flourishing. And whether we recognize this longing for what it is or not, I would suggest that this is the deepest desire of all of our hearts. We want to be blessed. We want to experience the good life. We want to thrive and flourish. And that's why we work so hard. That's why we work so hard to make more money or to get into certain circles of influence, to gain power and prestige, to be fit and healthy. We, we work so hard to try to find the good life on our own. But you see, we're not listening to the source. We're terrible predictors of what will make us happy because we've missed the, the key ingredient. There is no flourishing apart from God. There is no flourishing apart from his favor. Augustine famously put it like this. He said, God made us for himself and therefore our hearts are restless until we find our rest in him. So if you're not right with him, nothing else in your life will be right. But if you are right with God through his covenant of grace, well, that's when the blessings will begin to flow. So the second question we need to ask ourselves is, well, if that's what it means to be blessed, who exactly is Jesus talking about? Who are the blessed? Who is his target audience? Well, at the very beginning of the passage, chapter 5, verse 1, we read, Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain and sat down. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now, in our day, usually when someone is going to teach, they stand up and address the crowd. But in the first century, a rabbi would sit down and address his students. So Jesus is primarily addressing his disciples, but then at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we read that after Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished. They were astonished at his teaching. So Jesus is primarily talking to his followers, and yet he expects the crowds to listen in. And that's true today as well. The Sermon on the Mount is directed first and foremost to Jesus' followers, but Anyone, regardless of their background or their beliefs, should look on and listen in to what Jesus has to say. And I know that both groups of people undoubtedly are represented in this sanctuary this morning. But still, the question remains, 
who exactly is Jesus talking about? Yes, he's addressing his disciples, his followers, but who receives this word of blessing? Who are these beatitudes for? And this is where most people make one of two mistakes. And if you make one of these two mistakes, you will hear the entire Sermon on the Mount wrong. You'll hear it all wrong. See, the first mistake is to read the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount in a rigid, moralistic way. And when you do that, you assume that Jesus is listing a set of virtues, a set of virtues that we are meant to cultivate. And if we cultivate uh, these virtues, well, then God will bless you. So if you work really, really hard and try to become poor in spirit, or if you mourn enough, or if you're meek enough, well, then you can earn God's blessing. But that would turn his blessing into a spiritual attainment, which we acquire through our own effort. So that's the first mistake, to, to read the Beatitudes in this rigid, moralistic way. But the second mistake is, is to do the opposite. And some people overreact to that, that rigid, moralistic way of reading the Beatitudes, and, and they read it instead in a lax, permissive way. But that's also a mistake, because what ends up happening there is people say, well, the blessed are not the virtuous, but the victims. Those whom Jesus, bless, those whom Jesus blesses are not, not the virtuous, but the victims. And so if the one sort of hyper-spiritualizes the Beatitudes, the other approach hyper-secularizes the Beatitudes. And one commentator who I admire quite a bit on almost every other matter, makes this mistake. He says those who are beaten down and, and crushed by life are blessed simply because of what they have suffered. Poverty, grief, powerlessness, injustice. But nowhere does Jesus ever suggest that we are better off by nature of being poor or grief-stricken. I mean, can you imagine... If you're talking to a parent who had just lost a child and you said to them, blessed are those who mourn, I mean, that would be cruel. That's not at all what Jesus is talking about. So you see, the, the, the one mistake suggests that, well, if you cultivate the right attitude, you'll be blessed. And the other, that if you're simply the victim of circumstance, you'll be blessed, regardless of whether God enters into the picture or not. But that can't possibly be what Jesus is talking about. Years ago, Dallas Willard put it like this. He said, given these two mistakes, on the one hand, here we have full-blown, if not salvation by works, then possibly salvation by attitude or even by situation and chance in case you happen to be persecuted, for example. So meritorious attitude or circumstance guarantees acceptance with God. Can we really imagine that Jesus had anything like this in mind? So if we're not supposed to read the Beatitudes in this rigid, moralistic way or this lax, permissive way, how are we supposed to read it? Well, we're supposed to read it in a gospel-centered way. The Beatitudes are telling you you are worse than you think, and yet at the very same time, you are more loved than you could ever imagine. And you see, that is the key. What I want you to notice here is that uh, the, the first and the last blessing end with the same promise, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now that should tip you off. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That phrase brackets the Beatitudes, which tells us that this is what the Beatitudes are all about. The Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount are all about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. You see, here's the idea. The whole reason why Jesus came was to introduce a completely new way of being a human being. And you see that based on the way in which he launches his public career. If you look in the immediately preceding chapter, Matthew chapter 4, Jesus goes around announcing his primary message. So what did Jesus say? What did he run around telling people? We would think that, based on our understanding of Christianity in 21st century America, that, that Jesus must have gone around from town to town saying, if you believe in me, you can go to heaven when you die, leaving the rest of your life here and now otherwise unchanged. But that's not what he says. Nor does Jesus run around saying, well, if you'd like to enjoy an uplifting spiritual experience, you might want to hang out with me. No, he doesn't say that either. What does he say? Jesus says, forget everything you know. Forget everything you have heard, because here comes the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is now a present reality. The power of of God, the presence of God is accessible. It's available to you now because it is present in the person of the king and his name is Jesus. The kingdom is wherever Jesus the king is present, wherever his reign is acknowledged, wherever evil is subdued, wherever his people are rescued, wherever his ways are followed. He brings the kingdom and when he unleashes the power and presence of God upon this world, it changes everything. He's introducing a whole new way of being human. Now, I understand that this talk about the kingdom of God can be a little bit abstract. What do we actually mean by that? So let me give you this analogy. Whenever there's a new president or a new governor or a new mayor or a new CEO who comes to power, what do they do? They establish a new administration. And that power is expressed through new policies, new priorities, new strategies, new ways of getting things done. And more often than not, the goal is to try to improve human lives in some way. So we could think of the kingdom of God as the administration of, of God, the administration of Jesus, but with this important difference. It's not as if Jesus is simply introducing a, a new administration that's just like all the old, old ones and he's simply swapping out the players. No, his administration is the exact opposite of everything we've ever seen or experienced before. His kingdom turns the values, the priorities, the commitments, the standards of our world upside down. And his goal is not merely to improve human lives, but to change them, to make us radically different creatures than we were before. He's introducing a whole new way of being human, and that's why he says, forget everything you know, forget everything you've ever heard, here comes the kingdom. Here comes the loving, gracious rule of Jesus, and that is the gospel. That's the thrilling news of the gospel. And so when it comes to the Beatitudes, here's the main thing that you need to understand. So let me give you a little hint. If you don't remember anything I said this morning, just remember this part. When it comes to the Beatitudes, Jesus is not telling you what you need to do or what kind of attitude you need to cultivate in order to enter into the kingdom, in order to win God's favor and blessing. 
Jesus is not telling what you need to do in order to enter the kingdom. He's telling you what happens to you when the reign of God falls upon you. You see, when you place yourself under the power and the presence of God that has been made manifest in the person of Jesus, you become, in a word, different, radically different. So he's not telling you what you need to do to enter the kingdom. He's telling you what happens to you when you encounter the kingdom by sheer grace. You become a whole new kind of person, and the Beatitudes reveal that that upside-down nature of the kingdom of God These are the qualities and the characteristics that define an authentic Christian life. But the last question we have to take up is, well, how exactly does this work? How do we receive this blessing? And in response, I'm just going to focus on the very first beatitude. We won't even get past the first beatitude today. But this first beatitude is the key to unlocking all the others. Writing 500 years ago, Martin Luther suggested that the words of Jesus here in verse 3 fly in the face of our commonly held beliefs. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. No one in the history of the world has ever said anything like that. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Luther suggested that the greatest and the most universal religion in the world The greatest, most universal religion in the world is the belief in success. Whether it takes the form of succeeding and acquiring wealth or power or prestige or whatever, everybody thinks that personal accomplishment is the path to happiness. Or if we were to put it in religious terms, we would say that the one who is blessed is the one who is self-sufficient, the one who is strong the one who's righteous, the one who's got deep spiritual resources, the person who knows the Bible, who loves to pray. And Jesus says, nope, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is a tricky verse, I admit, because in the parallel passage in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus omits those words in spirit. And he just says, blessed are the poor, which naturally then raises the question, well, what is he talking about? Is Jesus talking about spiritual poverty or material poverty? but we need to be careful not to drive a wedge between the two. Conservative scholars say, well, of course, he's only talking about spiritual poverty. And liberal scholars would say, well, no, he's saying that the poor are automatically blessed simply by virtue of being poor. But no, you need to understand that spiritual poverty and material poverty in the Bible are connected to one another in a very specific way. In the Old Testament, the word poor was used almost as a technical term to describe not merely people who were materially impoverished or physically oppressed, but rather the word poor described those who were materially impoverished and physically oppressed and who in the midst of their plight rely on God alone as their only source for help and for hope. So we can't drive a wedge between these two. Jesus is not saying that poverty in and of itself is a blessing. No one would want to live below the poverty line. There's nothing good inherently about poverty. So what is Jesus saying? What he is saying is that while that may be the case, it often proves true that those who are materially impoverished are under less illusions about their need for God 
and therefore they're more receptive to receive his grace and to enter into his kingdom. That was true in Jesus' day, and it remains true in our own. So the point is, whether we are materially well-off or not, the secret to the life that Jesus offers is not to try to build up spiritual resources of our own, but rather to acknowledge our spiritual bankruptcy. You see, the more we come to see God for who we really are, the more we, for, for who he is, the more we see ourselves for who we really are, and we acknowledge our poverty, and we realize our desperate need for his grace. So let me close with this final story, which illustrates this point from the Old Testament. You may be familiar with the, with the figure of Jacob, the second son of Isaac and Rebekah. Well, throughout Jacob's life, he's... He's a little bit of a trickster. He's duplicitous. He's conniving. He exploits his brother Esau's hunger and swindles him out of his birthright by trading it for a bowl of soup. And then later, he works in cahoots with his own mother, Rebecca, and tricks his blind father into giving him the blessing that was intended for Esau. And so when Esau finds out that, that Jacob has stolen not only his birthright, his inheritance, but also his blessing, he's furiously angry. And so Jacob has to flee for his life. He spends decades away from home, but eventually he's got nowhere else to go. And so he begins his journey home. And in Genesis 32, he learns that his brother Esau has come to meet him. So the night before he comes face to face with his brother Esau again, he, he wrestles with a mysterious figure who he later realizes is God. He wrestles all night with God, and and with one touch, God knocks his hip out of its socket so that Jacob is going to spend the rest of his life walking with a limp. But as daybreak comes, God tells Jacob to give up. You're not going to win. Just let go. But Jacob says, I will not let go unless you bless me. What does he want? He wants the blessing, the favor of God that will lead to flourishing. Now, how would God respond to such a request coming from a person like Jacob? Well, it's a very curious response because he turns to Jacob and says, what is your name? Why would he do that? Why would he ask Jacob, what is your name? Or do you know what the name Jacob means? It means usurper, swindler, Liar, cheat. So God makes Jacob say his name, Jacob. But that's the moment where then he receives God's grace because finally the duplicity is gone. Finally he is able to see himself for who he really is. Finally he's willing to acknowledge his desperate need for God's grace and God's grace alone and that's what changes him because then God gives him a new name, Israel. And he will become the father of a great nation. You see, this is what it means to become a Christian. A Christian is not someone who merely acknowledges their sin or admits to their mistakes. Anybody could do that. Pharisees acknowledge their mistakes. A Christian is someone who acknowledges not only their sin, but also admits that even the best things that they have done have been tainted with self-interest. A Christian is someone who acknowledges their poverty of spirit. They know that at the end of the day, they are spiritually bankrupt. They have no currency with God. You and I, we don't have anything to commend ourselves to God. We don't have any leverage over God. God owes us nothing. 
We could never turn to God and say, I, I deserve better. No, we're, we're spiritually bankrupt. All we can do is say, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. And when we acknowledge that we are empty and we've got nothing, that's when he fills us. That's when the power and the presence of God comes upon us and we become a whole new creature. We receive his favor and that's what leads to our flourishing. But the question, of course, is why? How? How, how can God do that? How can God accept a person like Jacob in light of everything that he'd ever done? And how could he accept someone like you? How could he accept someone like me? Only because of Jesus. Only because on the cross, Jesus is the one who is crushed. Jesus is the one who is wounded. Psalm 22. All of his bones were knocked out of joint. You see, Jesus is the king who had all the riches in the world, but he became poor so that through his poverty, you and I might become rich. And all of this is ours if we simply acknowledge that we need it. Blessed are the poor in spirit, the spiritually bankrupt, those who know that they are spiritual zeros. Because the moment you acknowledge your emptiness, you will be filled. That's the key to human flourishing. The question is, do you want it? Do I want it? Are we willing to do that? Are we really willing to do that? Can we acknowledge our poverty? I mean, look at me, I'm a pastor. I'm a preacher and a teacher, a student of the Bible and of the human heart. Can I honestly admit that I don't have any spiritual resources of my own? But it's true. Compared to God and his riches, we're nothing. We've got nothing to commend, nothing to give, nothing to offer. All we can do is receive. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. But I want you to remember this. Because the Sermon on the Mount is a sermon all about doing. There's lots of things that we're going to have to do in response to his grace, but it all starts right here by acknowledging that we do not have the spiritual resources at all. We're bankrupt. We have no spiritual wherewithal to follow through on the things that Jesus calls us to. We're absolutely 100% completely dependent upon his grace to do anything that he requires of us. So this sermon that's all about doing, living out the ethic of the kingdom, begins with acknowledging our poverty, and we never move past that, ever. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge, oh, we want your favor. We want to know what it means to be accepted, to be approved, to be welcomed into the heart of things so that we might experience the flourishing that only you can offer. So help us to move past our pride, our stubborn resistance, and to listen, to listen to what Jesus is trying to tell us. We thank you that he holds forth the key to flourishing. And by sheer grace, through the Spirit's power, gives us the ability to become whole new kinds of human beings. Work that grace in us, we pray in Jesus' name.